Hello, this is TechBiter Worldwide, formerly Technology Corner, for the week of April 8, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And this week, a surprise, a surprise, in fact, for me. Just about everybody, including me, seems to think that hackers or More accurately, in my estimation, crackers are responsible for most data loss. That may not be the case, at least not according to research from the University of Washington. That's a school, by the way, that's just a few miles south on I-5 from Microsoft. Phil Howard is an assistant professor of communication at the University of Washington, and he says that by the end of this year, the two billionth personal record will have been compromised. By personal record, what he means is a social security number or a credit card number or academic grades or someone's medical history. By his reckoning, electronic records in the U.S. are bleeding at a rate of 6 million per month in 2007. That's up about 200,000 a month from last year. Before I go any further, let me define a couple of terms. Hacker and cracker. It's probably a losing battle, but I consider the term hacker to be one of honor. Crackers are the ones who raid computers to steal information. Think of safe cracker and you'll understand the term. So I'm going to use the term cracker where Howard has used the term hacker because I believe that distinction still matters. Howard bases his projections on a review of breached record incidents as reported in major U.S. news media from 1980 through 2006. The total through last year stood at 1.9 billion records. That's about nine records per American adult. The report, co-authored with Chris Erickson, University of Washington geography doctoral student, will appear in the July edition of the Journal of Computer-Mediated Communication. And if you want the bad news, Howard says he thinks his numbers are pretty conservative. The researchers avoided counting reports of a single incident more than once. Howard believes that similar incidents took place but went unreported or underreported before 2003. In 2003, California passed legislation called the Notice of Security Breach Law. It went into effect in 2003 and required companies to report problems with security. It's a safe supposition that there were incidents prior to that because companies are loath to announce such events because of the legal culpability they might face. Howard and Erickson say that crackers are responsible for only about 31% of the 550 confirmed incidents between 1980 and 2006. 60% were attributable to organizational mismanagement, for example, missing or stolen hardware. The cause of the remaining 9% undetermined. A single incident in 2003 involved 1.6 billion records held by Axicom, an Arkansas-based company that stores personal, financial, and corporate data. That was by far the largest event to date. In that case, the offender controlled a company that did business with Axicom and had permission to access some files on Axicom's servers. 
Prosecutors say he plundered other records, then tried to conceal the theft. When viewed in terms of the number of reported incidents, three of five are the result of, in Howard and Erickson's words, organizational malfeasance of some variety, missing or stolen hardware, insider abuse or theft, administrative error, or just simply accidentally exposing data online. Thanks to the mandatory reporting process established in California, they've been able to get a much better snapshot of the spectrum of privacy violations. And the surprising part is how many of those violations are organizationally prompted. They're not the lone wolf crackers doing their thing with malicious intent. Corporate America, says Howard, would prefer to let market forces, factors such as negative publicity and expenses generated by data loss, take care of the problem. One problem with that is that frequently there is no expense associated with data loss. If a store loses your records, gives them away, accidentally allows them to leak out the back door, the store doesn't really have to do anything. So there is no cost. But with identity theft listed as the fastest growing crime in the United States, market forces are unlikely to be sufficient. The federal government has dropped the ball, said Howard. It appears that states, such as California, may be stepping up to fill the regulatory void. And along the same line, the Internet was not developed to be a dangerous place. Andy Markin, a West Coast public relations guy, said that during an online conversation, I asked for permission to quote him, and he provided that. The Internet was once an innocent place. If you doubt that, take a look at the program logic of SendMail when you have time. The application that handled the Internet's email when it was still ARPANET still handles most of today's email. But SendMail has no security. None. That's one of the reasons that spam continues to be a huge problem but the developers of SendMail were working on a closed network, and they assumed that senders would be honorable. The Internet was not developed with today's users in mind. It wasn't developed for spammers and scammers, which Australia-based Marshall's Threat Research and Content Engineering Team estimates will represent 90% of the email by the end of the year, says Markin. And that's been steadily increasing. Only a few years ago, we were shocked to find that it was 60%. The past couple of years, it's been in the 80s and continues to climb. Markin says that the Internet wasn't developed for you to buy and sell things, or for YouTube-based viral ads, or to allow unfettered sharing of music. Markin says most of the folks who now want to make huge bucks off Web 2.0 never waded through the difficulty of CompuServe. And he remembers when only real members of the press had addresses at the well. Ever hear of that? Certainly not recently. None of these folks ever thought that the network of networks would have so many cannibals ready to have them for lunch. You know that the Internet started by connecting research institutions and college campuses. Then companies with very large budgets were able to get hooked up. Eventually, anybody could get on the Internet for just a few bucks a month. And there's no going back. In the 1940s, people said television was a fad. In the late 1980s, they said the Internet was a fad. People also thought that automobiles and the telephone 
were fads. This leads me to think that individually some of us are smart, but collectively we must be pretty dumb. Despite the troublemakers who spread spam viruses, worms, and such, there are more of us than them, and every day we're doing more business, gaining information, and being entertained via the Internet. Perhaps now would be a good time to point out that Al Gore did not invent the Internet, and also to point out that he never claimed that he did. Only the Rush Limbaugh's of the world continue to peddle that antique canard. The Internet is popular and important. Originally envisioned as a way to improve information exchange between campuses and research institutes, the Internet turned out to make it possible for businesses to flatten the organizational chart and communicate better, internally and externally. Twenty years ago, an employee would have had a hard time getting a message to the CEO of even a small company. Today, it's not unusual for CEOs to read email from all levels of the company. Creative people use the pipes and technology for commerce, music, television. Record labels are dying, but independent musicians see the Internet as the best possible advertising medium. They make their money at live concerts. Andy Markin says, based on research by Mindshare, young people have been raised on the Internet and can't imagine a world without its instant connectivity. It is used for personal and business communication. It's the first place we go for information, music, photos, video, and data. People raised on the Internet still expect it to be free. Stuart Brand at the first Hackers Conference in 1984 spelled out the dilemma that remains a battleground today. He said, on the one hand, information wants to be expensive because it's so valuable. The right information in the right place just changes your life. On the other hand, information wants to be free because the cost of getting it out is getting lower and lower all the time. So you have these two fighting against each other. But free isn't an option, says Mark, and not in our free enterprise world anyway, especially if we really expect personalized entertainment to be the new frontier. Internet Protocol TV, IPTV, also known as Video On Demand. It's a good way to watch what you want to watch, where you want to watch it, and when you want to watch it. Producing that stuff does take some time, some effort, and some money, even if you distribute it on YouTube or MySpace. Broadband is almost universally available in most countries. Take a look at these figures. In Iceland, nearly one in three inhabitants is a high-speed Internet subscriber. Now, assume two to three people per family, and you'll see that adds up to 60 to 90% of the population in Iceland has a high-speed Internet connection. In the U.S., it's about 20 of every 100 people. That puts high-speed penetration around 40 to 60%. The lowest rate in the developed world, down around 2%, is in Greece. Dark fiber is a term that is used to describe fiber optic cable that has been installed but is still waiting to be used. In the U.S. and Canada, there's enough of that stuff in the ground to handle the most aggressive video demand growth right now. That includes high-def television to homes. The only trouble is the final few feet from the pole to your home and within the home. That still needs work. It's going to be expensive. The Internet has delivered on its initial promise of allowing anyone, anywhere, to connect for business, information, education, and entertainment. 
The challenge for most organizations, especially sellers who are reaching out to buyers, is delivering information and content that can somehow be monetized without being stolen. Digital rights management is not the answer. That's been my opinion from the beginning. Markin puts it this way. As quickly as new and better DRM solutions are unveiled, another kid cracks them and offers the pick locks to the world. The minority who feel they deserve everything free will steal. Markin and I differ just a little bit here. It's not always kids. But we do agree that it's the minority who feel they deserve everything for free and that they're going to steal. Keyword, minority. Most people are willing to pay fair prices. Fair prices. Fair. Not $90 for a DVD. That's what Hollywood originally thought was fair. Not $20 for a CD. You're never going to straighten out the crooked, so it's better to educate the honest and price your wares fairly and competitively. And by the way, Markin says the future is all wet. One problem we need to solve is maintaining connectivity around the globe. If you haven't looked at one recently, take a look now. A flat map is okay if that's all you have, but a globe tells the story better. Look at all the blue areas, the water. Remember when our space guys were on the moon looking back at the little blue planet? All that water. You can't put wires on poles in water. You can't bury cable in the water. Well, you can, but you have to make sure it gets to the bottom of the ocean. And in some cases, the bottom is a long way down. The Pacific Basin is surrounded by a ring of fire. It's an unstable underwater landmass that's constantly shifting. That's where there are hundreds of small, fragile, fiber-optic cables. It's expensive to put down there. It's expensive to monitor, and it's very expensive to fix when something goes wrong. Remember that underwater earthquake a couple of months ago, the one that severed some of the lines in Asia? Life and business continued, but it was inconvenient because communications were delayed and, in some cases, lost. A lot of thoughts there. What does this mean for the future? Well, it means we're going to be paying for bandwidth and reliability. How much? Mm, I don't know. The jury is out right now as to whether that payment can be done in a way that will allow us to maintain what we hope will continue to be net neutrality. In nerdly news, speaking of digital rights management, Apple and EMI announced this week on April 2nd, by the way, that EMI will begin selling all of its music through the iTunes store without digital rights management code. All of the unprotected tracks will be available starting in May. Instead of 99 cents, the tracks will sell for $1.29. And customers who purchased DRM-protected tracks will be able to upgrade those tracks by paying an additional 30 cents. I wonder if they decided to announce that on April 2nd, because if they had announced it on April 1st, nobody would have believed it. Or perhaps more likely they decided to announce it on April 2nd, because April 2nd was a Monday. The quality of the DRM-free tracks is going to be higher, too, 256 kilobits per second instead of 128 kilobits. EMI's CEO, Eric Nicoli, says, We believe that offering consumers the opportunity to buy higher-quality tracks and listen to them on the device or platform of their choice will boost sales of digital music. DRM-protected lower bitrate files will continue to be available for 99 cents. 
The change from Apple's flat rate pricing makes it possible for other artists to set specific prices for their tracks. The even better news for consumers is that EMI's bold, at least for a record company bold, move may pressure other labels to drop digital rights management. Remember when most software was copy protected? Now most of it isn't, although some does require activation. The circumstances aren't exactly parallel, but there are similarities. Several weeks ago, Steve Jobs said that if DRM requirements were removed, the music industry might experience an influx of new companies willing to invest in innovative new stores and players. Of course, I should point out there is already a lot of high bitrate non-DRM music available online. CDs are mostly free of digital rights management software, and they are easy to convert and share. The Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, ICANN, back in the news, as they are frequently, they are again refusing to establish an XXX top-level domain that would be used for pornography. Interestingly, both porn merchants and porn fighters are on the same side. Porn merchants don't want it because it would segregate their businesses to what would essentially be a red-light district. And oddly, anti-porn forces don't want it either because it would, in their words, send the wrong message. Now, what's more important, action or symbolism? Talk about being symbol-minded. If porn sites were relegated to XXX domains, they would be easy to find. But... They're already pretty easy to find. They would also, if they all shared the same XXX top-level domain, be very easy to block. For the anti-porn folks, I have this message. Pornography has been around for a long, long time. If you want to go back just to the invention of photography, you'll find some of the early daguerreotypes were porn. So were paintings. And probably so were drawings on cave walls. It's here to stay. It's not going to go away anytime soon. If you want to protect children from porn on the Internet, the best way to do it is to be adult about it and admit that it exists and that it's going to continue to exist. Create a specific red light domain and then block that top-level domain from your computers. ICANN Chairman Vince Cerf stunned an open meeting of Governmental Advisory Committee in Vancouver recently when he announced that ICANN would not set up the XXX top-level domain. Most of us thought that that red-light district had already been given a green light. Why did this happen? One theory suggests that the U.S. government intervened but doesn't want to be seen as the hand behind the puppet. The U.S. government retains unilateral control of the Internet but claims never to use it. Yep, and I still believe in the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, Chicken Man, and Santa Claus. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of April 8, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.